Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to crises, COVID, business continuity, resilience, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. It is that time again. We will be having a great conversation about 2023 and uh, the summer of crises we're having with Regina Phelps. Regina, welcome back. Alex, it's so good to be here. And my goodness, could it get more interesting in our lives? (laughs) Oh, I know there's so much going on in the world right now that businesses and communities, countries, individuals need to uh, um, focus on. Really it's quite remarkable. To. It's quite remarkable. And actually, you know, Canada is one of the places that are, is in the news right now uh, more than anybody else, it seems. Well, okay. You, I think Russia might have beat you out lately, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, it is, it is. Yeah, right. Well, we'll talk about that later. But the idea that that every day for weeks now, Canada has really been in the news. And I've been, it's been really fascinating to see how all of a sudden, People have woke up to go like, oh, my gosh, Canada has crises. And, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, they have wildfires, too. And you have wildfires actually every year. But for some reason, this year with climate change has been one that has attracted the attention of the East Coast, primarily because they could <laughs> not see across the, the street. Um, so that was fascinating. I'd love to hear what's going on right now in your world, because apparently, at least in the United States, they think it's over because the sky seems to be clear. <laughs> no, it's not over at all. Yeah. It has been uh, absolutely terrible here in Canada, right across the country. We have 10 provinces and three territories, and uh, all but two have uh, forest fire issues right now. It is nonstop. And we haven't even hit July and August and into September where the real fire season is. Wow. It started this year in March and hasn't stopped. Uh, and I actually, I knew what we were going to be talking about today. So I actually went and did a little bit of search on a few things. Have you had um, drought as well? I mean, obviously you must've had drought to have this yep. kind of severe weather conditions already. And yep. I guess I just we've been so obsessed, obsessed with our own drought in the West, in, Cal- in the United States. I'm sorry. We haven't thought about you having one. But obviously, that's the case. And so the fact that it started in March is shocking. Yeah, February turned out to be, um, at least where I am, for sure, uh, the hottest uh, February ever. Wow. Um, And a lot of places didn't get the snow that they normally get. Some got, you know, an unbelievable amount, but still it wasn't um, the yearly average. It was spaced out over time. We get one big dumping, but then it's all gone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had days touching 30 degrees where I am in uh, April, and that never happens ever. Wow. But yet we were having that. And that's happening in so many different places. Listen to the as of June 21st, uh, mm-hmm. we have uh, 2,765 active fires on the go. And they're mm-hmm. not little tiny ones. No. Big ones. Um, 17 million acres. Actually, it, and the number is probably higher since since uh, you know, this is the 21st, wow. uh, have, have burned. We've had um, pushing 130,000 people having to be evacuated. Now, this is Canada. Right. You know, right. We don't, so that's 130,000 is a huge number. Yeah. California has more people than our entire country. Right. So 130,000 people up here is a lot. Right. right. Um, that's happening. And a big chunk of it is from lightning strikes Mm. because of the storms 
hitting the dry uh, bush, you know, lightning strikes, starting mm -hmm. all these fires. I know social media will have it that it's arson, but no, it's not. Most of it is uh, sparks from trains going through dry areas. Oh, right, you know, right. The lightning strikes. Yes, people will uh, sometimes not put out their campfires properly, but the majority is happening through lightning strikes. And it's continuing um, because we're we're warmer. Our fire season now, on average, is two weeks longer than it was a couple of years ago. But this year, before uh, I, if I hopefully I remember this right, in May, they said it was already the worst fire season we'd ever had in this country. In May. In May. Oh my God. So and you still have till the fall, and we right? still have to the fall to go. Um, and you know, some of the fires have beat out you know Fort McMurray. If anyone right, remembers is, that disaster a couple of years ago, just horrendous out there. Um, we've had worse situations now. Wow. I've actually read that some um, European firefighters that have been coming to work in Canada for you, and you've gotten quite a few people from all over the world, that many of them have been really, I will use the word confused, because their job in their countries is to put the fire out. And the job in Canada, because you have such an expanse of woods, is to basically make sure it doesn't burn anything, but basically keep directing it away from actual cities or villages or things like that. And so they're like, you know, how to fight a fire when you're not really putting it out. You're just kind of redirecting it. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, And we don't do uh, very much of controlled burns because yeah. the controlled burns actually uh, tend to be on the land of the indigenous people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if we do control burns, we're destroying their livelihoods at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they do a lot of that. So they, they can't do, right. they, they, you know, they can't, they don't want to give permission to do um, control burns because then what, then we've got another disaster on our hand. Right. So right. It, it's, there's a bit of a, a chaos here. And to your point, the, the confusion Canada doesn't have a national forest fire uh, mm -hmm. group or uh, whatever you would call it, uh, ministry. Fire brigade. Yeah, fire, you know, a national approach to it. Each pro uh, province has its own um, approach and they, they take care of it. Unfortunately, what happens is when one project uh, province has uh, a greater impact, let's say uh, British Columbia, Mm -hmm. And Ontario and Quebec and uh, you know other places will send their uh, spare, I guess you could say, uh, firefighters to help BC. And then when BC is un under control, they'll go somewhere else uh, or back to their home provinces and deal with what's happening you know, in Ontario. But now, well, what happens when it's all on fire? And that's what's happening now. We're right. all on fire. Right. So um, the government has already said, okay, we have to stop this individual province approach we have to come up with something else with this has to change so that's a good thing you know i just wish it was already in place because there's so many people that are being impacted and yeah you mentioned the smoke <laughs> um <clears throat> it's even impacted me here i know uh you know a big part sure. of it has been the east coast of the u.s right. new york and boston you know they're all i've seen the headlines blame canada you know, and it's all our right. fault, you know, and right. even a conspiracy theory that we were doing it on purpose. I <laughs> uh, saw that one. Oh, God. But uh, we've had, uh, with the way that the um, wind patterns have been going and the way the climate has been changing, the winds have been going in different directions. Mm -hmm. So in, in uh, just a few weeks ago, when New York and Boston were experiencing that, um, that orange thick smoke right. you can right. go outside we had that here where i live too mm. and if you're going outside you had to wear a mask uh everyone's doors and windows we were closed schools canceled all outdoor activities um you know and anything that was outdoors was shut mm -hmm. shut down mm -hmm. oh it's um, extremely dangerous to be outside when yeah. you have that kind of particulate matter the 2.5 micron i mean that's deadly so that that's where things are here. It's and it's still going on, and we mm -hmm. still have uh, more to go, uh, mm -hmm. which is the sad part. Um, yeah, yeah. 
I'm, I've been thinking about it a lot because I'm uh, not only because I have a lot of dear friends in Canada like you, but I also am a big um, bird watcher. And of course, now there's tons of birds that are supposed to be nesting happily in Canada, having their babies. And now, of course, that's all been uh, disrupted. And so there's a huge sort of shift environmentally going on in the bird population because they're trying to find a safe place to be which is kind of interesting and really, again, sort of driven by this issue of climate change. And it's it's really disconcerting. But I think the thing that it allows us to also look at from a perspective of this crisis is that wildfires in particular, many businesses think that they will never really ever be affected by a wildfire. But we know certainly in California and in the western parts of the United States, this has been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so it's important that people stop and think about this. And even when my my clients in the East Coast kept saying like, oh my God, now I, I understand what you're going through in, Can- in in California. And it was like, well, didn't, weren't you paying any attention before? <laughs> but now yeah. they all of a sudden went like, oh my gosh. But then this makes it makes everybody need to think about their continuity plans in relationship to wildfires. And I think many people used to never think that that would they would ever have to be thinking about this. And let me just sort of point out a few things that I think is really important. I have a list that I, I go through with my clients that I think it's important that we think about. First of all, in the United States, and I believe in Canada as well, employers must provide employees with a safe work environment. That's kind of a standard labor practice. Yeah. And so just think about that with wildfires. You know, that means that In the case of wildfires, um, if people can work from home, they probably should be working from home because there's no reason for them to jump in their car and drive to an office. I mean, that's just crazy for those people that have actually gone back to really working in an office. The other thing, too, is that um, think about this is going to sound like COVID, but if people are at work, you need to think about your ventilation system. And remember back in the early days of COVID, we talked about this ad nauseum about you need to have a good ventilation system. You need to have a good HEPA filter. Um, You need to make sure that at least it's uh, rated at a 13. So it will pick up all these particulate matter, just like wildfire smoke, 2.5 microns. And so I think this is important also that people think about, gee, I now live in a place where wildfire smoke could be an issue. So what about ventilation? What about filtration? Uh, What about those masks that we bought lots of people? It's maybe they want to keep some of those. Yeah, I I saw a lot more people walking around wearing masks. (laughs) Right. It's so funny. That's absolutely true, right? Um, the fact that people haven't worn a mask for COVID in a long time, but all of a sudden masks appeared everywhere. And they weren't just wearing, you know, surgical masks would do nothing in a wildfire. They were wearing the real thing in 95. So it's like, wow. So I think I think it gives us an opportunity to reflect if you're any place where you think you might be exposed to wildfires. Oh, let's see, New York City, that now you have to really rethink this, right? And I think that that's an important thing. So what I would say to my clients, and I have a list of like, I think about five or six things. I always say the first thing you have to do is you want to make sure that you've reviewed your emergency plans. If you're in a place, and and I'll give you a good example, data centers. We have a lot of clients who are data centers, and they're all over the place, all over the uh, United States, all over the world. Uh, if If you think you have any possibilities of exposure to fire smoke, you need to update your emergency plan. Make sure you've really thought through the basics, right? And that it's not just a check the box thing. You've actually thought through what you would do if there was a fire and how you would keep um, aware of where, where it's at, where it's going, what's happening with the wind, all of those things that a lot of people, frankly, never think about. And so that's really important. The other thing would be if you're uh, in any business, but in particular, if you have any kind of technology, is really looking at what your power down procedures would be. Now you may say, well, Regina, data center is not going to shut down. And, and I'll say, well, <laughs> you know, if a fire is not very far from them, they better shut down. And so, you know, how would they go about shutting down? And again, many of my clients may be in Amazon locations. They might be in a variety of Microsoft uh, cloud places. Clouds still live on the ground somewhere. 
So um, I think it's important that you understand where your technology, first of all, is. And secondarily, do they have a process about how to manage that? And it's a great opportunity to ask that question when you're signing contracts with people about what is your power down? How are you procedures? How are you assessing your risk, such as wildfires? You know, how would you manage if there was a smoke related issue, i.e. New York City? You know, that's just common sense. And now people, I think, really see it's not just California. It's Mm -hmm. basically anywhere. Um, And it doesn't have to be smoke at a forest of yours. It could be your next door neighbor. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is also looking at things like um, making sure that you if you are in a wildfire area that you've really looked at all of your emergency lighting. If you lose power, you would have battery backups so that you could actually, if you had to do any evacuations or things like that, because as you probably, and I don't think you've experienced this so much in Canada, but in certainly in California, when they've done wildfire shutdowns, they, you know, they don't shut down just a little area of electricity. They shut down quite a large swath of electricity. And so you may not even be near where the fire is, but your region, your high voltage systems in that area could have been shut down. And so that means you need emergency lighting that's battery backup and, you know, those kinds of things, which again, people, except probably folks like us, think about. Uh, Look at the kind of things that you have in place that might be. So some of my clients, for example, are in laboratories and they have things like dry ice and things like that. You know, if indeed they lost power, what what kind of situations do they have to prevent things from perishing like blood, you know, blood or um, samples they've collected? So, you know, if you're in an industry where there might be those kinds of uh, concerns, how do you protect vulnerable or perishable products or things that you have? Yeah, it would be terrible to for for something to happen and uh, medicines or something like that are right destroyed. Right. Pharmacies, medical facilities, laboratories, but then also food supplies. I mean, it's the Mm -hmm. same kind of thing, right? It's sort of, it's like rethinking everything. Uh, And then also, I think it's important that they really think about issues such as really making sure they have effective um, security measures, because if they do power to have to power down, if they lose all of their power, uh, people might be concerned about things such as either uh, theft or looting or things like that that could go on. So, you know, what about windows? What about alarm systems? What about cameras? Are they all on battery backups? Blah, 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 blah. Um, in some areas, uh, my another one of my things that I ask my clients to do that are in fire prone areas is that, you know, is there a way that you can get at least assistance from law enforcement to either make sure that they do a drive by of your facility to be able to report status? Uh, and in some smaller communities in particular, they'll do that. And so many, again, data centers, I think throughout the middle part of the United States, uh, that they should really work with law enforcement to make sure that they are able to like say, hey, you know, if you not, not, you know, don't go out of the way, but if you're cruising by, please just drive through my parking lot and make sure things look okay. Yeah. Um, it's important. And a couple more that I ask people to do is that um, is that they should think about if, establishing a fire watch. So I have uh, several clients who are big data centers, and uh, they never thought about this before, but they're actually, one of them was in San Diego, um, which has had tons of fires, and they would actually keep trying to keep it running as long as they could. And I'd say, well, I hope you have a fire watch. And they looked at me like, what the heck is a fire watch? You know, and it is a live living person who basically walks around the building interior and exterior, who's doing nothing but looking for signs of fire. You know, so that's sounds like, why would I need that when I have cameras and stuff? It's because they might notice something that a camera's not going to see before a spike really, in, you know, ensues. So, uh, uh, smoke. right. Yeah. You know, a, hum- a human person is going to be more effective in a fire watch than any camera system that you have. And if you're in a place like that where you are really prone and where there are things potentially around you at close proximity, you should be thinking about that. And then you also want to be thinking about other ways that you might um, options for reporting fires, because 
A lot of people say, well, you know, if there's a fire in my building, I automatically, the alarm system will go off and automatically it's going to dispatch to my fire alarm monitoring company. But that's a lot of assumptions when wires might be damaged, fires might have actually damaged some of your equipment already, not or not immediately around your facility, but a distance away from you. So you need to think about what are the other ways that you would report a fire? And it may be that you're just, you know, re relying on, um, even some of my clients will even use, um, you know, the, the walkie talkies that with local fire departments, they'll even yeah. use CB radios. Uh, they'll use different types of old fashioned equipment that uh, works when other things don't work. I remember working closely with a facilities uh, manager a few years back. And uh, as we were doing disaster recovery and business continuity and things like that, and we were having a chat and he was showing me some of the things he had set up and he had a wall of six or seven um, walkie talkies, all numbered, all identified who they belong to, what they were for and everything. He goes, so if anything happens, I just pick this up right. <laughs> and right. I hand out the walkie talkies to the incident manager. Uh, you know, he would have one, he goes, just in case, cause we're all going to be exiting the building at different spots. So right. instantly we can get a hold of each other and right. report things. So two way radios, I have to tell you are still for many organizations that have a physical presence, a physical plant, are still really, really important. I recently was doing a large job for a big developer in the Bay Area, and they had just gotten rid of all their uh, two-way radios, and they were so happy. And I just <laughs> said to them, that was the biggest mistake you've ever made. <laughs> and they said to me, why? We all have cell phones. It's like, well, yeah, so does the world have cell phones. You know, and, and mobile phones are only designed to actually accommodate between two and five percent of the people that are in a region picking up a phone at any given time. And after that, you get a fast busy or you get nothing. And so if you really want to try and communicate with people in an area, having two way radios is like the best and mm -hmm. especially in a large plant. So tell people not to don't get rid of your two way radios you know, keep them in good working condition. They're going to save your butt someday when everything else fails. So they're really, it's, really, really important. It, it's kind of a, uh, that mentality of reliance on technology. Technology will save us, but you can't assume that it'll even be there. So right. you do have to keep some of those old things, like an old rotary phone somewhere. Yeah, that's right. You know? right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's amazing. But yes. And so I think those are important things. And I think it's good that 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 you just per periodically remind people and it should be like on a checklist, you know, whether you're in a fire area or not. But if you have two way radios now in any of your office buildings, any of your locations, that would be one thing I just want to make sure. And I would give that sort of pitch every time I had the opportunity uh, to talk about what are your emergency communication strategies? Let's talk about those. Oh, I love your two way radios <laughs> and, remind them, and remind them why you love them. Uh, I'd like to add something to your list yeah. um, before we take a break in a minute or two is knowing where some of your employees are as well. Very because important. Because be, now that after uh, COVID, we've got a lot of remote workers. So some of these people are going to be considered, quote, unquote, you know, critical workers or, you know, key subject matter experts. Yeah. Um, if they lived in Northwestern Ontario, um, up where my family lives, then um they're close to forest fires yeah they may not be available mm -hmm. you know and now you've lost your subject matter expert and you have an issue in your office yep. or you need something done that can't totally. be addressed totally totally so. before we take a break i want to give one more and then we'll yeah. and then i'm done with my fire suggestions the last one really is to make sure that people do periodic inspections around their facility for any fire hazards i know that people might say well that's not a business continuity job it's really a facilities job and and that's true. However, if indeed there's a fire, it becomes everybody's problem. So looking at safety hazards, fire hazards, things that are flammable, you know, gutters that aren't cleaned out, all of that stuff, I know sounds like a home checklist, but in reality, it's kind of the same thing. If you're not doing good fire prevention around the periphery and fires do come nearby or even sparks that can actually fly, in some cases, miles that's the last thing you need because that could be something that ignites your building when nothing else has. Yep. And that that's true because I used to be on a health and safety committee and in Ontario for certain size businesses or facilities, 
it's the law. You have to do an inspection. Right. Um, and, and I can't remember if it's every month or every two months. I someone can email me if I get it wrong, but <laughs> you had to do you had to do that. And you had to pick a spot and you had to look for those different things. You had a big list that you went through and you checked to make sure. And fire hazards was one, was one of the items on that list. And we had, right. and I was a member and I used to do these uh, inspections and I was a part of business continuity. So part of the networking, working together, and they would hand that to facilities and facilities would address, you know, like, hey, so-and-so um, piled up a whole bunch of uh, cardboard boxes, you know, where where they shouldn't be you know, type thing. So, and you know why that's also, I think important is I think there was, there, I read one time that there was some study that if you like, say, if it's a scratch on your wall at home, you walk by it once and you go, Oh, I got to repaint that. You walk by it the second time. Oh yeah. Third time you don't even see it anymore. And that's the same <laughs> for many things that we're talking about now is that you see it often enough. It doesn't even register anymore to you that it's important and you should do something about it. So yeah. that's why it's an, it's good for facilities to have other people's eyeballs on things so that things get resolved. Yeah. And on that note, we're going to take a break. Uh, we're talking with Regina Phelps today about 2023, the summer of crises. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it and profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Regina Phelps about the summer of crises 2023. Regina, hmm. you mentioned something to me about permacrisis and oh. poly crises. <laughs> Don't you love all these new words? So mm -hmm. uh, we, we've been talking about poly crisis, I think, for the last few months. You know, and a poly crisis is really where you just got a simultaneous number of events that occur all kind of at the same time. And they can be coming uh, slowly or rapidly. There was a new word which I failed to talk about when we started talking about polycrisis. That was the 2022 Collins Dictionary year word of the year, and it was permacrisis. Now, permacrisis is a little bit different because what it is essentially 
is an extended period of time of crises and insecurity. So there's like, they're just, it just like one thing kind of then extends into another where the poly crisis is many different things. Boom, 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 boom. Ukraine war, economic instability, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where the perma crisis is one long protracted thing. And you could kind of call the COVID-19 pandemic more in that perma crisis because it's one event, but it extends over a long period of time. But what I've I've found kind of interesting (laughs) is to think that these two words seem to be appearing, oh, I don't know, everywhere now. Mm -hmm. And based on the things that have been going on uh, just over the last weekend, but certainly over over the last seemingly the last couple of years, it seems to be nonstop. And that makes me think of this weekend and Russia. So what do you think about Russia and what happened this weekend, Alex? Wow. Um, Well, when it first started, uh, I woke up and turned on the TV and uh, thought I'd check the state of the nation, so to speak. Um, Not the show, just, you know, what's happening in Canada. What's going on? Uh, You know, uh, did I miss anything overnight? (laughs) And apparently I did. Um, With the uh, armed insurrection, uh, Prigozhin, and his uh, uh, march to Moscow. And... uh, by the end of the day, apparently it was over. Um, and right, the abrupt stop of the yeah, uh, abruptly stopped and was heading to, um, if, if it's all reports are correct, supposed to be heading to Belarus. Hmm. Well, that got me thinking, oh my God, because two weeks ago, right, Belarus received nuclear weapons. Right. And now Prigozhin and his army of uh, CNN estimated somewhere around twenty to 25,000 Men, mercenaries mercenaries yeah heading that way or that or that's where they will be heading and i'm kind of going hold on uh heading to belarus nuclear weapons um that's moving away from the south and the east where the the uh, current uh front you know uh, uh bombing and you know fighting is um heading to the north because belarus is north of ukraine Right. Ukraine. Directly north of Kiev. Exactly. It's just north of the capital. And Prigozhin has said many times he wants to eliminate, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, eliminate the enemy. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute. You just did an armed insurrection. You're moving your army to a place closer to the Ukraine capital. And you now have nuclear weapons at possibly his disposal. And I'm kind of like, oh my goodness, are we seeing the start of something even bigger? No. So you're thinking you're thinking something different than most of the prognosticators are saying on television, which is essentially that that this was some fulminating issue that Prigozhin had, and then really that Putin um, a, a big a, a sort of fight between the two of them, and then Putin uh, Putin sort of did whatever he did, and then Prigozhin just basically backed down. What you're saying is that maybe this is all planned. It it happened so fast. Right. That, you know, if it dragged on for a few days, then I could see it. You know, I, maybe I'd have an understanding, but it happened so fast. Less than 24 hours, right? Yeah, and we went from fighting the front lines to on your way to Moscow to on your way to Belarus. I'm going, wow, that, you know, that... Where was the the time for negotiations? Where was the time for talk? You know, I, I hope I'm wrong. It just, it was the first thing that popped into my head, knowing that Belarus now has nuclear weapons, Soviet nuclear weapons at their disposal. Right. I thought, oh, and an armed <laughs> army is now going right. to be there. Right. I'm right. like, oh my goodness. You know. That would definitely be the, that would be the poly crisis of the century, wouldn't it? Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. I I post a lot of things on LinkedIn. And over the last weekend, I posted a fair number of things about Russia. Fascinating, different perspectives. None of them about what you're you're, uh, forecasting or talking about. But it was interesting just to see the number of people that said and and replies back to me that they really thought that this was sort of the slow burn of World War III. That really starting really with actually the beginning of the Ukraine war when it started 16 months ago, and that and and also what's going on in uh, China 
and uh, the mercenaries down in Africa and so on, that this is really kind of a slow burn towards some World War III configuration. Yeah, you know, World, World War One was um, what Archduke Ferdinand his killing yeah. triggered it. Uh, World War Two, even though other things happened before, um, was the invasion of Poland. Well, mm -hmm. what's what's happening now? Right. What's going to be that one final trigger? You right. Know, so, yeah, it's it's a little it's it's unsettling, unnerving. You know, it's interesting because in the work that I I do, many of my clients are large global corporations. And the my 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 spring and summer has been really absorbed with uh, China and Taiwan, in very much that same way. And so there's a lot going on in that space in that part of the world that has a huge impact on American companies. Um, and because of the work I'm doing, I have a, a kind of a front row seat on watching this unfold. But one of the things that we've done is that we've been doing quite a few exercises to help companies figure out how to, you'll love the term, de-risk China, which I think is kind of funny. So the first time I was asked to design an exercise to de-risk China from their kind of portfolio of business, I thought to my, I, and I said to my client, I said, where the hell did that word come from? <laughs> I mean, like I'd never heard of the word de-risk, right? So, what did, anyway, they, what, what did what did they mean by it? Well, this is really bizarre. So, the UN, not the UN, the EU, the president of the EU, uh, for the last year had been talking about decoupling risk from China. So, the idea that many companies and countries are kind of coupled with China, and that uh you know like a, kind of a marriage if you will in in many ways both economically and with with manufacturing and so many things and then at some point the president of the EU uh, at a speech at the end of March said there's no way we can decouple what we have to try and do is figure out how we can de-risk which i don't think is possible at all really but that's the and then literally the next day I saw that in every business publication and I, and I didn't know about the speech at the time. And so I was thinking like, you know, did McKinsey come up with this overnight or something? I mean, like, what is this? Where did this word come from? And the whole concept is, and why I've been doing so many exercises on this topic in particular is because not, not it's certainly the anxiety of the executives in a large corporation, but who's super anxious is the board. <clears throat> who has been driving this in their risk committee saying, I want to know what you're doing, you, CEO and executives, to de-risk or minimize our exposure in China. Many of my clients are deep into China, as most of the world is. But I mean, there's been some really unnerving things about that country that really speak to the poly crisis, the perma crisis, and every other kind of crisis we can imagine that's been going on. And I, I ask everybody to really think about this. And you, and people may say, listening to say, well, I, we don't have any work in China and we don't do anything in China. Well, yeah, but I bet you buy stuff from China. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just the fact that your company may be directly exposed. But let me just talk about that just for a minute. Uh, so in the last month, there's been four companies who have been rated American companies couple of them big names like Bain and Company. The, and the ones that have been rated are consulting companies in particular, uh, with a lot of intellectual property and also intellectual property of their customers, their clients. So what happens is that there's and this is in China, right? In China. In China. In China. And so what they'll there's a national security police in China who basically has carte blanche. You know, they can arrive with a uh, search warrant. And the if you're not there, the building owner will let them in. But usually they arrive when you're there, they show their permit, and then they just march right in. And then they just go into any office, any room, uh, sit down. Uh, they'll ask for the password of the person whose computer they're sitting in front of. Uh, they'll go through, I don't know what. Uh, they'll take computer drives, they'll interview people, 
And, the law, and in some cases, they actually took the executives away for further questioning. Now, most of these companies... Sound, it sounds on this side like, oh my God, that's like a, um, a dystopian right. movie. You know, you're just going in and kidnapping people. Right. It's like the Gestapo, if you will. Yeah. Or something, right. It's yeah. And this is happening right now. Right now. So um, this when this started happening in particular, this just sort of ratcheted up the blood pressure of most American companies, because even if they have sequestered uh, computer systems in China and they with no ability to connect to the United States or other countries, let's say. There are still ways that information can be taken and intellectual property can be stolen, essentially. And um, one of my clients said to me, isn't there like a kill switch that we could just push a button and it would vaporize everything on a network? And I said, I, I don't think so. But talk to your IP, you know, IT person about that. And of course, we laughed over that because I talked to them and they said, like, what? Uh, you know, but that's a Hollywood thing. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. The kill switch. <laughs> And so, um, and so why this is important is, is that if anybody, you know, you may not do work in China, but let's say that you are a manufacturer and you have some things made over there. They have your intellectual property to make that object or thing or whatever it is. And that could be at risk as well. So any, any work that you have done in China, any processes that you have done in China, all could be at risk. And I think companies are now beginning to deeply understand that. And coupled with that, I will say, is that most of my clients in their offices, they don't have um, uh, anybody but primarily Chinese nationals working there, right? They're, they're obviously uh, highly skilled, very smart people working for this a comp a U.S. company. They're Chinese nationals. And the cost, you know, uh, the ratio, I, I've had people say different numbers to me, but like computer technology, the, like the cost of three engineers in China uh, is what one would cost in the U.S. Or five engineers in China is what one would cost in the U.S. And so it's all about money, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, which is amazing to me. But but I, I think the thing is, is that is that we could be in a situation where some companies are going to end up potentially maybe losing their intellectual property, losing their livelihood, if you will. And that's what scared the bejesus out of people uh, in boardrooms across the world, actually. And that's why the term de-risking really came to be. And so we've been designing exercises that basically create this kind of situation where something occurs in their one of their big offices or a big data center and it gets taken over by the Chinese and that basically they just take everything. And I will tell you that most of the people working there are Chinese nationals. And if somebody comes in from the government and says, you know, I need your password, what do you think they're going to say, Alex? Well, it's China. Okay, here you go. <laughs> yeah, right. You know. That's exactly what they're going to do. It's exactly what they're going to do. So that's not that they're being disloyal to the company, but they're, you know, they're Chinese and they're going to, you know, be respectful to their nation and mm -hmm. for lots of reasons. So the other thing that's going on right now in China that's important to keep in mind, which ties to all of this, is really two things. One is that Shea, the president or prime minister, I guess he's a prime minister, um, he in 20, uh, 2015 came out with something made in China 2025. And that was a kind of an edict that he issued to the country saying that there were nine industries that he wanted to make sure that China was approaching best of class in 10 years, 2025, which by the way is about 18 months from now, if you're paying any attention, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there are several things that they haven't made much progress on, but one of them is semiconductors. So if you follow a kind of technology at all in the, in the world, you'll know that the biggest manufacturer of semiconductors and probably the most sophisticated is TSMC. And where are they located? Taiwan. 
Taiwan. That's right. 60% of all the very, very, very sophisticated chips come from TSMC. And in some cases, depending on what chip you're talking about, they produce as much as 90%. So they are semiconductors. And so that's also just really increased the anxiety level, not only on the on the part of the people in Taiwan, but it should raise the anxiety level of anybody worldwide who puts a computer chip in anything. Uh, because nine times out of 10, it's probably was designed and maybe manufactured by TSMC. And so that means that anything that's part of that supply chain of TSMC, um, whether it's the type of machinery they're using, the software design, any of that stuff is at risk. And that's a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, and then lastly, um, you know, we still buy a ton of stuff from China. And so companies have huge exposures, and we all saw that in the pandemic. So this little thing I'm talking about with China is is not just for those people who are have offices over there. Frankly, it's for the world. If China really decides to to do something dramatic, it would be catastrophic to the world's economic system and God knows what else. Well, it already the pandemic proved that it can already be catastrophic. Right. You know, you know, still today, uh, I was talking with someone on Friday at a client site where they were talking about ordering some equipment and they said it still takes a long time, months to get something. Right. Well, we're also seeing that not just in equipment, but we're seeing at least in the United States and in Canada, pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. There are two countries that produce most of the pharmaceuticals in the United States, in the world, China and India. And there still is a wide variety of pharmaceuticals, many of them life-saving cancer therapies is one of them that comes right to my mind, where they're back-ordered forever. So it's, I mean, we are so connected with many of these places around the world that we, you know, I don't know how we can de-risk it. But what I would say to anybody who's listening in the continuity space is that you should be really thinking about what your connections are to China. I'm not saying that you should try and stop them. I'm saying you should understand the risk. And what I have found interesting in the work that I've been doing over the last six months in relationship to this topic is that it's so difficult still for many companies to tease apart where things are in design processes, where things come from. It's still difficult. And so what I would say to anybody is that supply chain, I know you thought was the pandemic 2020 through 2023 problem. Well, no, I think it's going to be the ongoing problem. And part of it is, is because we are so connected to these places now that are really volatile. And really, we have these tensions with that if we don't understand what's going on deeply and every one of the ways that we could be affected, that we're all going to be at risk. And and that's what's driving boards right now, big corporations, to make um, make their executives do exercises and deeply understand what the risk is, because most people still don't know 100%. And I know that may sound crazy, but I'll tell you, I've talked to a zillion companies and they don't know exactly. Yeah. And that's a huge risk. And that's like the poly crisis of our lifetime right now. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why uh, African leaders went to Ukraine, because if the war continues, the famine that multiple places in uh, Africa are experiencing is going to continue. Right. Oh, yes. They they are already knowing that the longer this goes on, we're going to have, sadly, more deaths. Right. You know, right. and if the war continues, you know, things change, um, you know, with with what's been happening recently, then Africa is going to suffer. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, more and than I it think, already is. Right. Right. And I think and this goes and this and it's compounded also Then when you lay another crisis on top of it, which is climate change and thinking about Africa in particular and thinking about crops. You know, there's many places right now where there are droughts in Africa, where they've had a really difficult time growing what they normally grow because of either drought or just severe heat 
I mean, look at India. It's been just boiling. Oh, my gosh. Hmm. Uh, that those places can't grow the crops that they normally have or they're just frying in the fields. And it used to be in the old days that, for example, Ukraine, because they're like the second or third reproducer in the world, they could have this huge crop of wheat and be able to send that to all of these different countries as a big cushion to protect them when their crops failed. Uh, and now that's not available for the most part. And so there was just all of these things. So you uh, you see one crisis in one part of the world and, and you may think, oh, it doesn't impact me. Well, you know, that's not true. If you start teasing it all apart, it really does. And then the instability that that causes in another part of the world will then cascades to another part of the world. And yeah. then we have this really catastrophic series of things that we have now. So I think this goes back to what we talked about um, last time we met last month, which is that we need to expand our vision and always be deeply curious and always asking why when we look at all of these things, because they're all connected. But if we look at our crises that are in front of us with just a, you know, a tight focus, we are missing how it's going to impact us going forward in all of these different ways. And China, Ukraine, Africa, all of that is such a great example. And looking at the destabilization, uh, when you look at, uh, you know, climate in particular, you know, it's making people move all over the world. Because if you can't feed your families, you're moving. Yeah. And that's what's happening in Africa. So then they start moving and that destabilizes another country. And then they get on boats and they try and get into Europe. And then there's all of that that goes on. It's a huge destabilizing factor. So we need to always have a very big vision in our work because the world is so interconnected in this polycrisis environment that we live in right now. Yeah. And, and you, you know, people really do have to understand they got to look beyond their direct supplier. You know, I'm not worried. I buy okay. something. I buy my product from somebody down the street. Yeah, but they're getting it from, right. you know, right. Ukraine or China or whatever. Right. You know, you've got to look beyond that initial supplier. You've got to look at the second, third, and maybe beyond, you know, mm -hmm. to your point, all the connectedness that, that's out there. Right. So I think the most important thing is that in the polycrisis world, all of uh, the individuals in our field of work have to be deeply curious and always asking why and dig into all of these things because otherwise we'll be flat footed and we will not succeed. And on that note, we've come to the end of the show, Regina, you know, um, certainly is a summer of crises. It'll be interesting to see where we are next month. Oh yes. In the, in the heat of July. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Regina. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you, Alex. It's always great to be with you. And everyone watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.